Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. Welcome back to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. After our one week of vacation, we are eager to dive back into the world of lowercase and uppercase L labor. (laughs) If we were in any other major industrialized country, we would have four weeks of vacation, but that's another story. Check back next week to see whether we have been able to accomplish that in the United States. (laughs) But in the meantime, a quick roundup, as every week, this time of some news from the past two weeks in labor. Unfortunately, we picked a bad week to go on vacation because a lot of things were happening. Um, You guys might have heard that uh, there were some fast food strikes on uh, August 29th in some 60 cities. They had at least a couple workers go on strike, marking a pretty huge escalation in the fast food campaign, which became public less than a year ago here in New York. So as we noted before, different community allies are involved in the organizing in each different city, but it's certainly clear at this point, if they're coordinating 60 city national strikes, that this is a national campaign with national coordination happening, um, supported with money and organizers and coordinated through the Service Employees International Union and Change to Win, the labor federation that they are a large part of. This wave of strikes hit cities in the deep south in Gretna, Louisiana, which um, I don't know if we have any listeners in Gretna, Louisiana. If we do, I'd love to hear from you. I used to live in New Orleans, and I used to go to Gretna fairly regularly, actually. In Atlanta, in Raleigh, North Carolina, in um, the southwest, in Phoenix, in the Midwest, in New England, in Connecticut, in California, as well as, of course, the cities that have already seen actions. They are supported as, again, or in, you know, sort of more impressive fashion this time by some members of Congress. Um, Keith Ellison, Jan Schakowsky were involved. Of course, the question remains, what is the fast food industry going to do in response to all these strikes? Um, So far, the answer has been crickets. Even as we've seen workers begin to take independent action in their stores between the coordinated national strikes. In some cases, winning small victories in their stores, like we talked about the um, heat wave strikes to get air conditioning back in the stores. Such small demands that we ask for here. If the industry remains sort of stoic in the face of these one-day strikes, it's clear that the campaign will have to find some other tactics to bring pressure on the bosses if the goal is actually, as stated, to get these workers to $15 an hour and union recognition. It's going to take more than one tactic to get there. What do you call someone who lives in Gretna? Would that be a Gretnan? I don't know. If we have any listeners in Gretna, would you please enlighten us? I mean... Let us know. So speaking of how industry giants respond, we are recording this as Walmart workers prepare for what organizers have promised will be the largest mobilization by Walmart workers and in support of Walmart workers since the Black Friday strikes last year. On Thursday, workers are planning to stage demonstrations in 15 cities. These are not strikes, but will include various kinds of protests, a march through downtown L.A. As I reported for The Nation, the the last mobilization in D.C. around the same set of issues involved civil disobedience, so that uh, could reasonably be seen as a possibility here. These actions are primarily a response to rampant alleged retaliation. Really, the, the other shoe that many people were waiting to drop and finally did in a larger and more dramatic way this summer with 20 people who participated in a June strike having been terminated, another nearly 60 having been disciplined in some way. And 
we see both in the Walmart campaign and in the fast food campaign the real challenge of mobilizing workers to get in motion and act collectively in the face of a very real threat of retaliation and a very weak set of government remedies for doing something about it, as we've discussed on Descent Magazine's belabored podcast in the past. Just a few times. So we've seen fast food strikers use a a tactic that Kate Bromfenbrenner told me she thinks is the most important innovation in the campaign, which is regularly bringing community supporters back into each of these little fast food restaurants to escort each of the strikers back to work to dissuade retaliation. We've seen in the Walmart supply chain a strike at Elwood, Illinois' Walmart distribution center, the largest Walmart distribution center in the country, where four subcontracted workers who had been fired allegedly in retaliation were reinstated, although at least one of them has since been fired again, allegedly in another act of retaliation. But there is a tremendous challenge now facing the Walmart campaign, and since this new wave of firing started in June, we've seen the campaign take up various tactics to try to squeeze Walmart, including going after Marissa Meyer, the CEO of Yahoo, who's on Walmart's board. I reported on civil disobedience in her lobby, including outreach to members of Congress. Alan Grayson has introduced a bill that will not pass in this Congress, but is designed in part to (laughs) change... Will anything pass in this Congress other than war on Syria? Fair question, but is designed to put this issue front and center in a way that never was done that effectively in the Employee Free Choice Act debate, to put front and center the stories of workers who exercise what many people think of as First Amendment rights in the workplace, though, of course, the First Amendment does not actually protect you from your boss if it's in the private sector throwing you out of your job because you stand up for yourself. And now we've seen these mobilizations. We, we have not so far seen Walmart employees, direct employees of Walmart in retail stores, go back out on strike in response to this retaliation, this alleged retaliation, or since then, since we saw this wave of firings and terminations in June, it remains to be seen whether that will be a further escalation. Certainly with Black Friday coming just around the bend again in a couple months, I know in conversations I had with worker activists in Arkansas and elsewhere, there was a lot of excitement about doing something this Black Friday that will be even bigger and even more dramatic. Well, we'll see what happens this week. So in yet another round of One Day Strikes, port truck drivers who we've talked about on this show before at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach went on a one-day strike last week as well. These were, again, one-day strikes. They went back after 24 hours. We've talked about the conditions of port truck drivers before, specifically that many of them are classified as independent contractors and thus end up bearing a whole bunch of costs like maintaining their trucks that would otherwise be borne by the employer, um, meaning that in some cases they make less than minimum wage and they have no recourse because they're not technically employees and so technically they're not making wages at all. These workers, though, are employees of a company called Greenfleet, and they are attempting to organize with the Teamsters. There are some independent contractor truck drivers at this port um, that work for Greenfleet, but these were not directly involved in this strike. The ones who did strike this week 
have petitioned for union recognition and were striking over more alleged retaliation. They accused Greenfleet of hiring a union-busting firm rather than responding at all to their petition. And in something that Josh has written about, a tactic of the Teamsters in other places, they picketed not only their employer, but also the recipients of the goods that they deliver from the port. So one of those included a uh, distribution center for Skechers Shoes that is not far from the port that many of uh, that the shoes end up moving through the port. Um, they're called ambulatory pickets, which I sort of think is a hilarious term. Um, but... Yeah, so you not only target directly the boss, but also attempt to mess up the other end of things, the delivery end of things. And so we're seeing these strikes spread from the fast food industry, from Walmart to other places, um, to, in some cases, sort of very different places. As Josh was just saying, these workers as well were escorted back to work by clergy, by community members to prevent possible retaliation. The Teamsters, of course, are part of Change to Win, the same labor federation as SEIU, which is supporting the fast food strikes. And until just very recently, as we also, I believe, discussed on this show, the UFCW, which is supporting our Walmart and the Walmart strikes. So we're seeing this one-day strike tactic spreading. My concern, of course, is that, once again, as I was saying, that the need for escalation if bosses get too used to having just one day strikes, it's sort of easy to hunker down and ride out just a day. Um, if they become predictable, if they become something that people can foresee and sort of plan around, they may lose the effectiveness that so far they seem to have had, or in some cases anyway. So as we notice this tactic spreading, it'll be worth watching whether it maintains effectiveness or whether it starts to lose some of its power. From striking strikes to silica dust, just as Belabored was heading out on its one-week hiatus, there was an announcement by OSHA within the Department of Labor that a very long-awaited silica dust rule is being released as a proposal. Silica dust, NPR noted earlier this year, has been seen as a safety hazard even going back to the ancient Greeks. It's a small particle that can give you lung cancer, kidney disease, a condition called silicosis. OSHA predicts that if this rule becomes law, it will save the lives of 700 people a year. This is a rule that advocates have been pushing for for over 16 years. It's something that was floated within the Obama administration two and a half years ago and put forward for 90-day review. Two and a half years is longer than 90 days. Some advocates have blamed the Office of Management and Budget, which, as we've discussed uh, more recently, came under the stewardship of the former head of the Walmart Foundation, but in Obama's first term as well, has come under some real criticism in terms of the pace at which pro-labor regulations move forward. OSHA said that this took a long time because they had to do a lot of studies to make sure that this change, which would significantly reduce the amount of silica dust that workers can legally be exposed to, would work. But this news is something that was welcomed by labor, but also with a a warning from Rich Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO, that of course there are still choke points at which this could be prevented from actually becoming law. 
This is something that Trump identified to me the day after Obama's re-election as a top priority for the AFL-CIO. It's become, along with the question of safety rules after the West Texas disaster, the question of labor regulation for domestic workers, the question of child labor protections on factory farms, where a rule was scrapped after objections from Al Franken and Sarah Palin, a question that goes to the level of aggressiveness from the Obama administration when it comes to doing what the executive on its own, the executive branch, has the power to do to protect workers. We're happy to have with us today somebody who joined us for our launch party of the Belabored podcast, um, Daily Coast Labor Editor Laura Clausen. Um, Laura writes about just about every aspect of labor and some other fun things besides. Um, before she was at Daily Coast, she was a senior writer with Working America, and um, we're very glad to have her. Thank you for joining us, Laura. Thanks for having me. So... You write about, as we've said, cover labor on a daily basis, writing multiple posts a day. That means you're looking at a pretty broad view of the labor movement pretty regularly. I often feel like I sort of go down a rabbit hole and feel positively or negatively about the whole picture based on what story I'm doing that day. What's your take on the overall state of things right now? <laughs> well, <laughs> Easy questions, I know. Right. Just You start with that really small question. Yeah. Um, you know, if we're talking about the labor movement as movement, obviously there's a really depressing big picture that's been going on for a long time, um, low union density, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the story we all know. Obviously, recently there's been really exciting developments with low-wage workers, and that's kind of giving hope for the future, I think, um, at least that people are fighting back and that... The ways that the economy has shifted seem to be kind of sinking in and that people are realizing, you know, this is not just a product of the recession. This is it. Um, So you mentioned that I used to be at Working America and actually the last year or so that I was at Working America, I left in 2011. One thing we were starting to hear in the field was people pushing back against the idea that they were middle class. Exactly the people who historically in the United States have said we're middle class, even when they weren't really, if you kind of took a really rigorous view of what middle class meant, that that had been an important identity. Now we're going middle class. Who's working? Who's middle class? You know, we're working people. Um, I don't know who can be middle class these days. And so I think that 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 has really sunk in more broadly than you would have thought even five years ago. So Working America, where you were a senior writer, is the non-union affiliate of the AFL-CIO, the largest labor federation in the country. They're holding their quadrennial convention starting Sunday. What are you going to be watching about that convention? What, what do you think will or should happen at this convention? And to what extent do you think a, a labor federation that is, in some sense, the, the servant of the affiliates rather than the master... Although, to what extent is, of course, a controversial question. <laughs> to, to what extent could it move the needle in terms of where where unionization and where the labor movement more broadly is going? 
I mean, I think we've seen some big steps with the AFL-CIO in terms of publicly acknowledging the problems of the labor movement and in terms of trying to broaden out to first things like Working America and more recently to other kinds of non-union organizing um, and worker activism. So I look for that to continue, but I think, you know, the big question, as you say, is the relationship of the affiliates to the Fed and kind of how far they can push that. Um, The AFL-CIO has been talking about things like partnerships with non-union progressive groups, which is on the one hand, I think, a great idea in that unions are often sort of left out of the progressive movement when non-union progressives think about the movement. But at the same time, you know, there's been a fair amount of, I guess, political science and sociology work on the kind of professionalization of the progressive movement and the ways that it's become staff driven and not, you know, and not member driven. And, and because it's been driven by big funders, middle class and working class voices have been left out. And I think the labor movement is one of the places that you continue to see being funded by working people and responding to their voices accordingly. So I wouldn't want to lose that. So Working America, I I reported this year that they're planning to move into all 50 states and maybe even more significantly move into the workplace and go from mobilizing people who are part of a, a larger working class around politics and policy to giving people tools to do activism at work. What's your view of that expansion? What do you see as the, the potential or the pitfalls there? Where, where do you see it going? How significant is it? I think moving into the workplace is really exciting and that, you know, unions historically kind of had all these roots in communities that as union density has declined, unions have sort of lost some of those really deep ties and that if you can find a way to combine kind of community organizing and union organizing to get people at home and at work, that's hugely important in revitalizing the labor movement. The 50 states thing, I think it'll depend on implementation. You know, you never want to see your favorite restaurant suddenly open three more restaurants because maybe they overexpand and quality suffers or they lose money and have to close. But I also think Working America has for years been kind of shifting offices around the country. So if they can kind of develop little tendrils out then enable them to shift more quickly, then that could be good. So, you know, it's really, that one's an implementation question. So you also wrote recently about the AFL-CIO discussing being active in Texas, specifically during the next election campaign. We've talked a little bit about union spending on election campaigns being a topic of some controversy in recent years. A lot of money being spent on national races for um, not a lot of return. Do you think it's a positive that the AFL is looking at spending in state races, specifically states like Texas, where they don't really have a huge footprint anyway? Is it better for them to get involved in a local level where often Republicans seem to have a big advantage and, and go unchallenged? I think that getting involved at the local level and in like state legislative races is huge because name recognition is so low in those that a relatively small investment can actually make a difference, whether it's, and it's much more likely to be kind of grassroots type canvassing, maybe some mail, but you know, you're not going up with big TV buys for state legislative district 450. That's only in New Hampshire, I guess. But, um, (laughs) 
you know, okay, 97. So I think that if you're going to spend on elections, that's a good use of money. And as, we, as we've seen in the last couple of years, you know, state legislatures can do a whole lot of damage. So that's a good place to spend. You know, if, I think it's also good if it's paired with some actual organizing. And it sounds like the AFL-CIO is also interested in trying to do a little more organizing in Texas. So if you kind of try and organize some workers, then try and organize some elections into getting a slightly better state legislature, that's kind of where you might start to see some cumulative change. Yeah. You also had a piece up at Daily Coast about moves by the associated builders and contractors to get around California prevailing wage laws. I want to ask about prevailing wage laws and but first, your piece talks about charter cities, and I'm like, I'm just picturing like a charter school, but on a city level, like what's a charter city? Uh, charter cities in California are actually cities that adopt charters. Yeah. Uh, you know, they have a ballot measure saying we're going to be a charter city, and that allows them to get around California general law. So, I mean, you know, I, I assume that there are, I don't know what the limits are. I assume that there are limits and that you couldn't have a charter city that was like the murder charter city or something. (laughs) But, you know, small things like labor law, sure. Wait, I think this was a subplot on a Veronica Mars episode. (laughs) No, I'm not kidding. Wasn't it? I I really only remember the first season very clearly. Belabored fans, Veronica Mars is all about class war. If you have not watched it yet, you should do that. Absolutely. Um, Cast of Veronica Mars, please tweet at us. We love you. Um, So... Back to prevailing wages now. We saw Mayor Bloomberg sue to overturn the New York City prevailing wage law. Um, there's this. There's sort of fights about this around the country. Why do people have such a hard time with the idea that publicly funded projects shouldn't pay poverty wages? Big scary unions. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think. But I mean, it's not even right. unions, right? It's right. literally like this is a city requirement that they pay anyone. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's partly the the way that this kind of campaign to persuade people that unless you have an MBA specifically, you shouldn't make money and that the kind of hourly wages that construction workers make, people don't understand that construction workers are out of work for a big chunk of the year. They don't think about the fact that they rely on those people's labor to have buildings not fall down on their heads. So they hear it and, and rather than thinking good. More people should have good wages. There's been this campaign that has successfully gotten a lot of people to think, well, I don't make that much. Yeah. You know, I I mean, I really, I think you just, you look around and you see the same dynamic every time some union is out there fighting for its members' pensions. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't have a pension and I'm a college graduate, so why should they? Yeah. The British writer, Mark Fisher, that I follow on Twitter sent me a link to a piece calling that like negative solidarity and that was an interesting yeah. term for that sort of yeah my friend Jake just refers to it as the scab mentality yeah um, so similar yeah so speaking of blame you wrote recently at Daily Coast about uh, Republicans blaming unemployment on drug use is this not the drug use or the supposed <laughs> drug use, but the the claim on the rise? And, and why is why do we keep seeing this? 
It seems to be, I mean, I think the class of 2010 state legislatures have really been into these like drug testing for unemployment benefits, drug testing for welfare kind of laws. Actually, I saw last night that I, um, North Carolina passed it and the governor vetoed it. Their Republican governor vetoed a drug testing for, I forget if it was unemployment or welfare. And I think the House just overrode his veto. So North Carolina may be getting one of these laws. And then, you know, some of the charmers in the United States House of Representatives also seem to be really on board with this. And they've not let the fact that it's generally unconstitutional stand in their way. They've either passed unconstitutional laws or, you know, found the like tiny little tweak that will make some Republican judge agree that it's maybe constitutional for long enough to stigmatize some people for their unemployment in an economy where there are like three job seekers for every available job. The last thing that we wanted to ask you is you inaugurated Daily Coast's labor section, which includes news analysis, calls to action. How do you see your site's role in progressive media, its relationship to the labor movement in, in the time that you've gone from being a commentator at Daily Coast to being an editor there? How do you think the relationship between blogs, other kinds of media, and unions in the labor movement has changed? As far as the relationship, I think that I've seen some movement in Daily Coast commenters, generally speaking, toward being labor-friendly. You know, I think, in general, the people who spend their days reading and commenting on blogs are people who work at computers and have a reasonable degree of confidence that their supervisor isn't looking over their shoulder either physically or electronically too much and that they won't get in trouble for it. So it's a fairly middle class group of people who I think a few years ago were saying, "Eh, you know, it was great that my grandparents were union members and that's why I'm middle class now, but I'm middle class now and I'm safe. And I think that people like Scott Walker and so on have kind of helped shift that. So I think we've seen a pretty big transition in our commenting base. I think that labor has done a good job of reaching out over the past few years also. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things about what I do versus like what you guys do is I'm sort of commenting furiously, writing on several different things a day and not doing much uh, original reporting at all. So you know, it's sort of, I think it's really important to have a media, like a left-wing media ecosystem where kind of stories filter through and are kind of dealt with in different ways. Um, and that I can do a broader range, but I obviously rely on the more in-depth reporting of people like you guys. So. We will link to some of Laura's terrific work at Daily Coast Labor on the Descent Magazine website. Uh, Follow her. Follow her on Twitter on Daily Coast. This brings us to the end of our podcast where we always say, Arg! I wish I had written that. So, Sarah, if you were back from your summer vacation, and it was the first day of school, and you had to say one thing that you envied 
while you were on vacation. What would that piece of writing be? I am envious this week of one of my colleagues at In These Times. David Moberg has an excellent piece up called America's 200-Year-Long Battle for Workplace Democracy. Um, And that is about exactly what it sounds like it's about. But more specifically, it's about the National Labor Relations Board, which Josh and I talk about on this podcast quite a bit, um, specifically brokenness of. But we don't often talk about its history and the way it has been staffed or recently not staffed. So Moberg dives into that history in this piece, taking us from the foundation of the country and America's flawed democracy as a whole to the creation of the board and the idea of democracy in the workplace and the war waged on the idea of democracy in the workplace by big business and all too many politicians, sometimes of both parties. He explains the tradition of the NLRB, the way that presidents have appointed more or less partisan people to it, and the recent deal that we spoke about on this podcast um, to once again staff the board and, as Moberg notes, avoid a Labor Day without a functioning Labor Board. But he winds up noting that it's going to take renewed worker militancy to really demand these rights, that we can't wait for nice politicians to put sympathetic people on the board because Democratic politicians have been, as we were just talking about, um, less helpful than we would hope in recent years. So once again, in other words, democracy is not guaranteed at the ballot box. Veteran labor journalist Harold Meyerson has an outstanding piece in the current issue of the American Prospect called L.A. Story about the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy, a group that, full disclosure, was started in significant part by organizers from the union I used to work for, Unite Here. Harold argues that Lane is really a a national model in terms of a not astroturf, not flash-in-the-pan labor community alliance that does both robust and deep community organizing and savvy and strategic policy work. So he goes through a history of the ways that Lane tried to use organizing and use politics to transform low-wage work in Los Angeles. He talks about using government contracts as a way to force higher standards for wages. He talks about community benefits agreements where you make approval or funding for development contingent on certain basic labor standards. He talks about so-called blue-green coalition work between unions and environmentalists, in particular in LA, around port trucks and trucking and how you can change trucking, an issue we talk about often, including in this very episode. (laughs) Change it in a way that makes it both less bad for the environment and less bad for the people who are driving the trucks. And he argues that while Los Angeles sometimes seems exceptional, it it is in part exceptional because of the work that Lane and the labor movement there has done over the past several years, much of which could be duplicated in part. And he puts forward the example of what Lane has done is one that is worthy of notice as labor tries to figure out its way out of the box that it often seems to be trapped in. I will actually be in Los Angeles next week covering the AFL-CIO convention for the nation. We'll be back next week following that, where we'll talk some about what did or didn't happen there on the podcast. And Sarah, if I wanted to hear you and Amy Goodman and John Nichols 
in one room, at one moment in time in the history of the universe. Is that possible? It's not only possible, it also includes Alison Kilkenny, Jeremy Scahill, and Robert McChesney. Um, on I know, I'm going to be really nervous, so I hope y'all will come out and be supportive, because I think I have to speak between Amy Goodman and John Nichols, and that's just really not fair. Um, it will be on September 16th here in New York City. If you are around, we will be at the Judson Memorial Church talking about Nichols and McChesney's new book, Dollarocracy. Um, tickets are, I believe, $10 or a little bit more, and you get a copy of the book. And proceeds benefit Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, which is a media watchdog group that I am a huge fan of. They do excellent work keeping the media honest, have for years. And so I would be happy to see many of you there. Again, that's uh, September 16th at 7 p.m. at Judson Memorial Church in New York. As always, we are grateful to Sarah Leonard of Descent and our totally fabulous producer, Natasha Lewis. We look forward to joining you again next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I cannot, we can't go. Cause society has enslaved me and it's crazy. Cause daily it gets harder and there's a place.